So our studies then, quite appropriately, are going to take us into Bible prophecy in the next uh, number of weeks to come, primarily focusing on the book of the Revelation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But what we thought we'd do is to give a little background, a little foundational study this morning, and that foundational study will take us to the book of Daniel. Daniel the prophet. Uh, there were a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and they were out on a Saturday afternoon, and they were roaming through the neighborhood and knocking on doors. Many people weren't there. Many people just absolutely rejected what they had to say, becoming very discouraged, and time and time went on, and finally they banged on a door, and a man on the other side answered, and he said, uh, well, come on in, have a seat, I'll, I'll be right back, and he went to the back room, And he came back out, and when he came back out, he said, Now, what do you have to say to me? And the one Jehovah's Witness looked at the other and said, I don't know, we've never gotten this far before. (laughs) That's Bible prophecy. You see, it's a timeline. If you look at the, the revelation that Daniel had, and you can understand why there's absolute confusion with Daniel. He'd come to the end of one of these great four visions that he had. He'd come to the end of, the, of it and he'd say, I don't even know what I saw. I can't put the pieces together. Turn, if you will, to the 12th chapter of Daniel. And this is the confusion that he experiences at the very end. Even at the very end, he cries out, oh, don't stop now. Don't stop now. Why? Because I still don't understand it. He said this. Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end times. Until the end times, it says, many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. What on earth is he saying? Oftentimes we say, well, that's the, that's the increase in technology. It, it may be that. But what it really, I believe it is, is an increase in the knowledge of Bible prophecy. And the period of time in chapter number 12 is really that great tribulation. What he's saying is those in that great tribulation, you make sure that your words that are being recorded are not lost. Seal them up assure that they'll be there because there's going to be a generation that is going to understand them fully. And that's those who go through the tribulation period. Those who end up in that great tribulation period, even those who are martyred at that time and their blood is shed at that time, they're going to fully understand. They're going to understand fully. Even those pagans, I believe, are going to understand I have evidence of that. I believe there's greater knowledge at that time. You say, well, the pagan is just ignorant. He just doesn't know. I don't know if there's a God or if there isn't a God. By this time, during the Great Tribulation, they'll know that there's a God. I have evidence of that. Why? Because they shake their fists to the heavens against the God Almighty. They know exactly who's pouring that judgment down on them. They have no question as to pouring that judgment down on them. And their rebellion has gripped their heart and they're sealed for an eternity away from God. They're sealed for a destiny in the great fires of hell. And you wonder why God would do such a thing to a person, why there would be such a dramatic judgment on God's part. Oh, friends, when you knowingly Turn your back on the very one who made your hands and your feet and made your flesh and made who you are. When you knowingly turn your back and say, I'll have not this God to rule and reign over me. That's what incurs the wrath of the almighty God. Knowledge will increase. It has increased. Look at the advantage that we have now. We have the Olivet Discourse. 
Matthew chapter 24. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ himself laid out many of these things. He also validated the credentials of Daniel as a great prophet, didn't he? So all the naysayers that say, well, he couldn't have, he couldn't have wrote when he wrote. There's no way he could have wrote. How would he have known about the Greeks and the, and, and, and the Romans? And how would he know about all this stuff? All the naysayers, they're put to rest. I don't need to listen to all that stuff. I don't really care. Matthew chapter 24 puts it to rest. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Daniel, the prophet of God. What an indictment. What an incredible indictment that that is. Let's turn, if we could, to, first of all, to Second uh, Peter and chapter 1 and verse 19. Now, why prophecy? Well, this is one reason for prophecy. He wants us to know. Do we know everything? Absolutely not. We have an imperfect knowledge as far as all these things are concerned. Daniel had an imperfect knowledge. He made that very, very well known. At times, he would fall on the ground like he's sick to his stomach over the whole thing. After these great four visions that were given to him. We are as well, we have an imperfect knowledge of all these things. But God wants us to at least have an aim, have an idea of what's going to transpire. And then comes covid Man, do you ever, you talk to people in your circles that are not saved, that are absolutely pagans. They have an ignorance of God. They have no real relationship with God. And they are absolutely unequivocally confused by all this. Oh, as, as long as the wheels remained on the cart and we're going down the road, everything is just fine. But what's happening? The wheels are falling off the cart. And they're confused. They're befuddled by the whole thing. What's going on, they say. Well, there's one thing with Bible prophecy. God wants us to have enough knowledge to know basically the line of what's going on. Have you ever gone spelunking? I did. I went spelunking in Illinois. I don't think I'm going to do that again. I didn't like the experience. I went down in a cave so deep that you could not, if you turned off the light, you could not see your hand in front of your face. That's how dark it was. God does not want us to exist that way. He wants us to have that, that blessed hope of one day we'd be taken off this earth. We'd be raptured off this earth, caught up. To be with the Lord Jesus Christ, that blessed hope. He doesn't want us ignorant. He doesn't want us anxious and distraught over all these things that are happening around us. Matthew chapter 24 talks about pestilence. Let me tell you, this COVID is a pestilence. It exactly falls into the description of a pestilence. A worldwide epidemic. We're seeing it more today than any generations even in the past, maybe. Look up, for your salvation draws near. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light, as a light that shines in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. That could be the rapture. I'm not sure that day dawn. But you're going to be given a certain amount of light so that it will shine out in your light. A light under your path that, that guides you through this maze of difficulties that's coming our way. Ultimately, it's going to end up in the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise His glorious name. And we will reign with Him. Not for just a couple of weeks, but forever and ever. Amen. Daniel chapter 2. We've got, to, we've got to blow through this really quickly. Daniel chapter 2, you remember that it was Nebuchadnezzar. This always 
baffled me until I got a hold a little bit better. As the years went by, I started studying this probably when I was a teenager. But I got a hold of this a little bit better. And it is Nebuchadnezzar. It is a pagan king who has this vision. You say, well, this vision then is very, very accurate. It is indeed accurate. And it is indeed quite prophetic in its very nature. Even the last part has not even been fulfilled yet. That fifth great kingdom, which will be guided up by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But we have four kingdoms, don't we? Four kingdoms that, that are portrayed before us. First, there's the head of gold, this great statue and, and this head of gold. And then we have the breast and arms of silver. And, and that's the Medo-Persians. No big surprises yet. Daniel was there during the Babylonian Empire. Daniel was there even bridging into the Medo and Persian Empire. He probably died about the middle of the Medo Persian Empire. So no big, no big deal yet. But then it says the belly and thighs of bronze. And that is Greece. Where was Greece at this time? Well, no man's land. There was nothing going on in Greece. There was no substantiated government. There was no substantiated power. There was nothing. It was hundreds of years later when Greece would come onto the scene. And even hundreds of hundreds of hundreds of years later when Rome would come on the scene. And yet the accuracy of this cannot be denied by the naysayers. The naysayers will say this. Well, he must have written during the Maccabean period. He couldn't have written when it says he, when, when history shows that he wrote this. All I need is the words of the Lord. That settles the issue. Daniel, the prophet. Empire after empire after empire after empire. And guess what? There'll be no more. And the strange thing is this. I want you to realize this. There never has been. There never has been a world empire again. You see, this was man's attempt to govern themselves. And it was an absolute failure. God gave them a chance. One. God gave them a chance. Two. God gave them a chance. Three. And then even a fourth chance. And that fourth chance will be revived in the revived Roman Empire. But there will not be another empire until the Lord Jesus Christ rules and reigns on this earth. Has there been? Oh, we've come close. There's been some in the past. Adolf Hitler probably got as close as anyone ever got. And he was absolutely an Antichrist. Without a question, he was an Antichrist. We're going to learn about Antiochus Epiphanes. You're going to see his name over and over and over again. You say, well, all these kings that came before him, why, does, why do they isolate themselves onto this king? Because he was so much like that Antichrist that shall come. So chapter 2. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar went to the, all the wise men and all the soothsayers of that day. And he said, come on in here, guys. I had a dream. And they said, oh, good, tell us your dream, and we'll be glad to give you the interpretation. And the king was tired up to hear of their nonsense. That's the view of this. He'd heard enough. No, you tell me my dream, and then you give me the interpretation. And they said, well, that's impossible. No man could do that. No man could do that, but God could. And that's where Daniel turned to his God, the God of heaven. And you'll notice as you read through this uh, particular portion, in verse 37, it says, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Those are risky words right there. What he was basically saying is, you got nothing to do with Nebuchadnezzar. The God of heaven sets you where you are. Those are risky words. And then it says, And whereas the sons of men dwell are the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky. He has given them into your hands and has caused you to rule over them. 
all, you are the head of gold. And he goes all the way down. And then verse 30, uh, 43 says this, And in that you saw the iron mixed with clay, common clay, this is, this is basically clay and mud, is what it amounts to. This clay is, is actually mud. It says, they will combine with one another in the seed of men. And I think that's the key to this whole portion. We have four empires, and they are all in the seed of men. And they are failure after failure after failure after failure. And finally, God said, no more, no more world empires. And there has not been one again until the King of kings and the Lord of lords reigns on this earth. What is the aim of prophecy? It is God the Father defending the rights of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to sit on the throne that only he himself has the right to sit on. He will rule and reign. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. And God the Father was out to prove he is the one worthy to sit on that throne. You had king after king after king after king after king. On and on and on. If you looked at the breakdown of the kings, there were literally hundreds of kings. And they all failed. Utterly failed. But this one, this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will not fail. And God the Father is going to make sure that one day he does sit on that throne that he rightly deserves to sit on. Go to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 14. Because this all correlates over. Now, we've got all these kingdoms. We've got all these empires. We've got these empires. We've got Babylon. We've got Medo-Persian. And then we've got the Grecian. Then we've got the Roman. We've got all these empires. And, and just to show you that eventually the pinnacle of this whole thing, the pinnacle of this whole thing is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is sitting upon his throne. Revelation chapter 19 and verse... I can find it here. In verse 14, and it says this, And the armies which are in heaven, and the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. I believe those armies are the resurrected church, the, 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 the raptured church. I believe that's us. We're going to be assisting him. We're going to be there with him when he goes on victory day. Verse 15, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the wine presses of the fierceness of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs are written a king of kings and lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in the mid heavens, come assemble for the great supper of God. That is the pinnacle of all Bible prophecy, is when the Lord Jesus Christ finally sits on his throne. Now, we know he's in the throne of heaven, but that throne in heaven is not going to be the only throne. He's going to have a throne on earth, too. And there's going to come a point when knowledge is going to increase to the point where there's not going to be any doubts of anyone on this earth that there is a God in heaven and he rules and he reigns. And what will cast individuals in hell is when they absolutely turn their back on that reality and they deny God that the fact that he is their, their creator, their God, they're almighty when they deny openly him, their destination is hell. That's the pinnacle in Revelation chapter 19 and uh, the, the whole of chapter 19. Let's go back to Daniel then. And okay, in chapter number two again, and we have the rest of this. 
great prophecy. And this great prophecy is one prophecy that is from man's angle. Look at, look at the word um, in verse 31. You, O king, were looking and behold, there was a single great statue. In other words, this is man's angle of world empires. Man's angle of world empires is to glamorize and glorify these world empires. God's angle on these world empires is to show that they're utter failures. They had a stone cut out without hands, and that stone was cast at the very feet of this. And the Bible says that the whole statue turned to powder on the ground. All that glory that man puts into their empires turns his powder on the ground below. No significance whatsoever in God's mind because God is waiting for the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rule and reign. And so he's showing that there is no validity in any of these Empire. So it's a very glamorous look at the same thing that we find in chapter 7, but there's added additions in chapter number 7, and we're going to go there in, in just a moment. Chapter 4, the haughty tree cut down, right? We have the haughty tree that is cut down. I want to turn your attention to verse 26 of chapter number 4. And it says this, And in that... It was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. And that was Nebuchadnezzar in all his absolute pride when he said in verse 20 and verse 30, the king reflects and said, it Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? And about that time, it was doomsday for Mr. Nebuchadnezzar. The king would be reduced to the life of a cow. And he would go about into the fields and graze on the grass. Can you imagine as the, the people in the kingdom would be asked, where's King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he's out in the backyard eating breakfast. Quite humiliating, isn't it? But then there's the recovery of the king. At that time, my reasoning returned to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Oh, you see, there's only one king. And Nebuchadnezzar learned that, didn't he? He learned that the hard way. And then he passes off the scene. And his grandson, Belshazzar, comes onto the scene. It says son, but it's not son. You look at the history of it. It's his grandson, Belshazzar, comes onto the scene. And just like all human beings, the old saying still goes, power corrupts. Absolute power absolutely corrupts. And he was no exception to it as well. Nebuchadnezzar rose up in pride. I believe Nebuchadnezzar saved. I believe he's in heaven right now. Belteshazzar, again, rises up in pride and, and, show, and gives forth these great banquets and these, these drinking fests that he put on time and time again. They probably went on almost every night, these kinds of parties. But this night was going to be different. Verse number 3. Then they brought the golden vessels that had taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. What a blasphemy. And the God of heaven watched as they would go through their drunken fests every night. No problem. Never stepped in. But now you've crossed the line, buddy. 
and he was to pay. He was to pay dearly. The same night, Belteshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom all about the age of about 62 years old. And so the, the kingdom had changed from the hands of the Babylonians on into the hands of the Medes and the Persians, this man Darius. Now, verse number one of chapter number six, Darius finds the value in this man, uh, Daniel. Now, you got to remember that Daniel uh, at this particular time was probably about, oh, 75, somewhere in that range. You remember that when he was carried out of Babylon, he was about 15 years old. He and his friends, uh, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which isn't really their, their real names, it's Mishael, I don't have the names here. But anyway, their, their, their Hebrew names were taken from them, and they were given Babylonian names. And so these four were taken out of Babylon, and, and it is probably definite that they saw some fairly disgusting atrocities as they were taken out. Now, they were taken out because there was, there was value in them in the eyes of the Babylonian government. And so there's value in Daniel. Listen to what it says. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdoms, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that they that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer. Loss. And so Daniel was taken from a high position in the Babylonian government and put into a high position in the Medo-Persian government as well. And then chapter number 7. Chapter number 1 through 6 is basically historical with a short look at prophecy, chapter 2. Chapter 7 through to the end is basically prophetical with a short look at or a fairly long look, actually, at history, and that would be chapter 11 and 10. There's also history that's sworn throughout chapter 9. All the chapters have some history in them, but basically they're of a prophetical nature. So chapter 7, we go back to prophecy, and this is uh, in very, very similar with chapter number 2, except... Instead of it being a glamorous statue that is raised some, I don't know how many feet into the air, uh, this thing was in his dream, um, it, it ultimately is wild beasts. This is what it says. In the year of Belteshazzar, king of Babylon, this is verse number one, Daniel saw a dream and a vision in his mind. As he lay on his bed, then the whole... Uh, then he wrote the dream down and relayed the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four wing, uh, winds of, of heaven were, stirred up the great, were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, this has a lot of connection to the Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1 and 2. You're going to find this exact same description in the Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. And so that's why the book of Daniel becomes a, a, sort of a, a go-to book as far as interpreting what's going on in the Revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first is a lion. And that lion then represents Babylon. And then there's a bear, <clears throat> and it says, and he was raised up on one side, and there were three ribs were in his mouth between his teeth, and thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. And that's the Medo-Persians. He was raised up on one side because the Persians actually took control of the kingdom, and the, Medo, the, the, the Medes actually sat in somewhat of a subservient role in that particular kingdom. And so that would explain the being raised up on one side. Verse number six, and after this I kept looking, and behold another one, like a leopard, 
which had on his back four wings of a bird. And, and we know that that's the Grecian Empire. And, and the way that they subdued the world at that time was in unbelievable quick fashion. In fact, it says of Alexander the Great, who was the first king of that particular kingdom, it says that he, he did it in 11 years. He basically conquered the whole world in 11 years. And at the age of about 32 or 33, he actually became so bored because all he knew was war. All he knew was violence and killing people. And he had no one else to kill. He had it all. He became discouraged and ended up dying at about the age of 33 or 32. It says this, And behold, um, mm, the, the leopard, After this... I kept looking and behold another one like a leopard which had on his back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in night vision and behold the fourth beast dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong and it had large teeth of iron. It devoured and crushed and trampled over the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. Verse number eight. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that uttered great boasts. And so we have introduced to us something that is not in chapter 2, and that is the Antichrist himself. The Antichrist, who would basically sign a covenant with the nation of Israel. We'll see that at the end, or into, into chapter number 9. But this Antichrist, then, is this little horn. And three of the first horns, another of the ten... Of the ten horns, there were three rebels who did not concede to his power. And those three rebels were destroyed. So it was down to uh, seven that were there. And I kept looking. Thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him and the court sat and the books were opened. This is the final when the Lord Jesus Christ judges this earth and these kings that stand against him. Verse number 14 says, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And that's what's contrasted against the the other four nations. They came and they went. They came and they went. They came and they went. This one will be everlasting. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Who is in control? Who is the sovereign of heaven? Who is the king of glory? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He's what's turning the heads of these kings. He's what's guiding history as it goes forth, ultimately coming to that final throne where the Lord Jesus Christ would sit. He's the one absolutely, unquestionably in Control, And then we have chapter number 8. And chapter number 8 is dealing with the nation of Greece and Medo-Persia. And Greece is represented by the goat. 
And Medo-Persians are represented by the ram. And it says that goat came with incredible speed and chowler, the King James, I think, says. Not this Bible, but King James says that. In other words, there was a ferocity about the way that he blitzed the Medo-Persians. And the Medo-Persians did not have even a chance. But then from that kingdom, Greece, there were four generals after Alexander the Great. Four generals that Alexander left the empire in control of. And they all went to different parts of the world. But there was one named Seleucus. And from Seleucus, there were many, 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 many. And then down at the bottom, there was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And his name comes up again here in chapter number 7. Because of his hatred for the nation of Israel and his judgment of the nation of Israel. God used him as a judge for the nation of Israel. His absolute hatred of the nation of Israel. He became a perfect type of the Antichrist. I believe he was an Antichrist in the mind of Satan because Satan had to have his Antichrist ready to go. Satan doesn't know the time of the seasons. He doesn't understand the whole picture. And so there's always been Antichrist. All the way through the ages, Satan had his man set up and ready to go. Sort of an Antichrist in waiting. I think Adolf Hitler was an Antichrist in waiting. He would have more than loved to take the reins as the Antichrist. He was a wicked and cruel man, unbelievably wicked and cruel man. Well, here we have this man... Antiochus Epiphanes, or Epiphanes, the Jews called him, which meant that he's a madman. He went into the temple after he had been defeated in Egypt. He'd been defeated in Egypt by Rome, believe it or not. Some of the Roman ships had defeated him and turned him back, and turned him back to the promised land once again, the beautiful land, they called it. And he took it out on them in ways that I don't even want to describe up here. It's unbelievable what this man did to the nation of Israel. When did he live? Well, he lived between that that New Testament and Old Testament, that Maccabean period. That's when he lived. When did Daniel live? Well, about five or 600 years earlier. How would he have any idea what was going to transpire? If you look at the list of kings that came out of Seleucus, just one of those generals, you say, why did they pick out this one? Because his activities were so in line, so in parallel with that of the Antichrist. And then we got to go to chapter 9. And we get this this timetable. You say, how on earth can there be a timetable? And yet there is. Chapter number 9 and verse, let's go down to chapter number 9 and verse number 20. We know that Daniel realized that the 70 weeks of captivity were about up. Jeremiah chapter 25, he was studying that particular portion, and he recognized that we're about ending the 70 70 years of captivity. And, And he became very active in prayer. He became very earnest in prayer. He didn't go out and, and run and, and blow horns and tell him, we're almost done. Hey, 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 guys. No, he just went to the Lord in prayer and acknowledged the sovereign hand of God in all of that. And God gave him answer. This is what it says, verse number 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sins, that's a good thing to do if you want the ear of God. Don't go in there without acknowledging first your deviations from his holy will. He confessed his sins and the sins of my people Israel and presented my supplications before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. While I was still speaking and praying, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came to me 
in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instructions and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are now, so you, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks. And you can see it up on the chart up there. The uh, restoration was under Cyrus. And Cyrus actually did not only just give them permission to go back, which was absolutely unbelievable. I mean, for a, a foreign king to say, go back and reestablish your country with the idea that that country might turn on them is unbelievable, but it was instituted by God the Father. And so God the Father said to Cyrus, you're going to do this whether you like it or not. Not only did he send them back to reestablish the walls of Jerusalem, which ultimately brought back the city, uh, he also funded the whole operation. And he sent protection as well so that no one would bother them, even though there were those that did bother them as you look in the book of Nehemiah. So there were seven weeks of years, seven times seven, and you have 49 years. And then we continue to read on. It says, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So then there's 62 weeks of years, and 62 weeks of years makes 434 years. 434 years until uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there, there is a man named Sir Robert Anderson who did the calculations, or there are others who did the calculations, and they both came up with the same conclusion, that it was actually uh, the, the week prior at his triumphal entry, just a few days before the cross, that this was fulfilled in its accuracy. So at the triumphal entry then, that's when it was fulfilled. Now, I always thought about that. I always thought, well, what? why the triumphal entry? Why not the cross? Well, that was actually something that occurred after, as you read it very carefully in Scripture, just days after, but after. But what occurred at the triumphal entry? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ continually was bombarded by desires of the people to make him king. Remember what he did? Time and time again, he would escape from their midst. He would refuse the kingdom. He would refuse the kingdom. But on this particular account, when he rode in Jerusalem, they cried, Hosanna. Did he refuse? No, he did not refuse. I believe that was the time that Daniel was talking about. Right on just days before the cross, when he rode into Jerusalem. So we have the cross. Then we have mentioned, and we'll continue on reading. And he will make a firm covenant. Oh, excuse me. Um, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And that's depicted right there. 70 A.D., Titus, and I believe his grandson were involved in the absolute destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And that is also predicted here many, many hundreds of years during the time of Daniel. 
and its end will come with a flood, even the end, there will be war, desolation determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now, who on earth are we talking about now? And in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to the sacrifice, grain offerings, and on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until the complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Who's the one who makes desolate? Go back to Matthew chapter 24 and you will see that as depicted by the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says in verse 15, Matthew chapter 24, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, ah, same word, abomination of desolation which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, Let then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. And you get Revelation chapter number 12 because he's going to hunt them. He's going to hunt them. He'll want them dead. That's the Antichrist. Signing a covenant with the nation of Israel. And for the first three and a half uh, 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 years, it it seems uh, a very agreeable covenant has been signed. And the answers to the absolute chaos that is happening in the world, because if you study the first portion, the first three and a half years, there is a lot of chaos in this world. All of that chaos is somewhat brought together by the administrative abilities of the Antichrist. But in the middle of that, he's going to break that covenant. He's going to desecrate the temple. And you've got the abomination of desecration. He's going to desecrate the temple. He's going to disperse. The nation of Israel is going to realize we have made one grand mistake. All this is in the Revelation in more detail as we get along there. And then chapter number 10. I just want to read this one little portion because we're, we're just about out of time. And I knew this was going to be a little problem as far as time is concerned. But um, but in chapter number 10, you have these words. <clears throat> in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar. And the message was true. And what a one of great conflict, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. This stuff affected him terrible. I did not eat any tasty food, nor did, uh, did meat or wine enter in my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all until the entire three weeks were completed. And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the banks of the great river, that is the Tibris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold and ephahs. His body was like burl, his face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. You went to Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. That's a description of the son of the living God. That's the final answer in this whole scenario that Daniel put together. And yet Daniel, after putting it all together, after hearing all these great visions, he just stood perplexed, absolutely perplexed over it all. He couldn't put all the pieces together. He didn't even, he wasn't even able to put together the pieces that we can put together today because we have the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Olivet Discourse. We have the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He said, put those things away, Daniel. They'll be good for another time, another season. What is the aim of prophecy? Go, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, and I'll stop with this. The aim of prophecy. Can't turn the pages of the Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angels to his bondservant, John. Jesus is the source and the subject. Now, read this. Read the first words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Is it his revelation to us or is it a revelation of him? It's both. It's both. It's a revelation of him on him. That's what Bible prophecy is all about. It's all about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that one day he will be exalted and given a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are many reasons for prophecy but none stands at a higher pinnacle and that reason, that we might have amplified in our minds the Son of the living God to give him his rightful place in our hearts. Oh, I pray that everyone here has given him the rightful place in their heart. Judgment day is coming. The books will be opened. God the Father will be seated on that great throne, that great throne of judgment. And judgment day is going to be coming real soon. Oh, that we might put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his redemption work at Calvary's cross. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do give you thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he is. That he is being revealed. And he is the revealer. And that's why we have one revelation. One soul revelation. A revelation of the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all that we would pray, to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.